Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm Rich Levin. With me today is my partner, Grant Evans. Good afternoon. And our special panel today, David Gallegos, Senior Vice President of Consulting Services at Change Healthcare, Faris Taylor, Executive Director of the Healthcare Executive Group, and Michael Brousseau, the founder of Insight Dynamo, a market research organization behind the report we'll be talking about today. So why are we gathered here today? Why did we bring David, Ferris, Michael, Grant, and myself together? Change Healthcare recently released the 2020 Industry Pulse Report. This is the 10th annual polling of U.S. healthcare leaders that was conducted on behalf of Change Healthcare and the Healthcare Executive Group, this year by market researcher Insight Dynamo. The Pulse Report is an annual study that takes the pulse of healthcare executives nationwide and reports on challenges, issues, and opportunities that they see in the coming year for healthcare. We're going to be talking about that today, the findings of this year's report, the news that has been generated by those findings. And before we get started, I'd like to go around the table just very briefly to give our listeners some context as to who we're talking to and why. So why don't we start with you, David? Could you just give us a brief introduction? What do you do at Change Healthcare? What does your team do? What's your involvement in the 2020 Industry Pulse report? Sure. Thank you. Uh, As a as Rich mentioned, I'm David Gallego, Senior Vice President of Consulting Services at Change Healthcare. Our, our group is responsible for helping payers and other healthcare organizations really capitalize on opportunities and overcome challenges as they face that in the transforming industry that we're in. Um, I've been part of the healthcare executive group through first as a CIO, um, but then as a sponsor for about 16 years. And I'm um, happy to be here talking about the Industry Pulse with you today. And before we go to Faris, David, give us a little background on the Industry Pulse. What's the backstory? Well, well, the Industry Pulse is a research study that we perform, both the Healthcare Executive Group and Change Healthcare, to really get some insights from healthcare executives across the country. And what we're looking to do is understand what, you know, their, their biggest fears, um, but also some of the things that they're most excited about for the upcoming year. As you mentioned, we've been doing this for 10 years now, and each year we we learn something new. Uh, This year in particular, uh, I'm super excited that we've had good participation from both the payer and provider uh, parts of our industry. And so we've learned a lot about where there's common um, sentiment about the, 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 the trends of healthcare, but also where they diverge in opinions and where healthcare should be going and how, and, and ultimately, some of the challenges they, they both face. And there's a method to my madness why I didn't want to go all the way around with introductions. I wanted to touch on the Industry Pulse first, because one of the things the Industry Pulse is based on, a catalyst for the Pulse and has been for 10 years, is something called the HKEG Top 10. So Ferris Taylor, Executive Director of the Healthcare Executive Group, tell us a little bit about what you do, what your organization does, and about the HKEG Top 10 that is sort of the backbone of the Industry Pulse research. Thank you, Rich, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with uh, each of you, and uh, also uh, David and I have worked together for all of those 16 years with respect to HCG and knew each other even before that. Um, The Healthcare Executive Group is a national network of industry thought leaders, primarily in innovation and technology, and uh, uh, this is our 31st year as an organization, but throughout the year, we interact regularly across multiple channels, webinars, white papers, uh, leadership roundtables. We have an annual forum, and at the end of that annual forum, our members uh, really come 
together and through a formal process of voting and ranking some 30 or 40 potential issues, we narrow that down to uh, what we call the HKEG top 10 list. It was uh, started 12, 14 years ago, sort of building on the David Letterman top 10, but it really helps our members and we hope uh, through discussions like uh, this podcast, helps the industry as a whole focus in on what the critical issues are and relate them to their specific organization. And that process during the year is actually in partnership with the research team and Change Healthcare and our other sponsors to really then have that HCG top 10 list be the starting point for the research that we're going to talk about today. So uh, this is an annual process. It comes to fruition as an industry pulse report, which is national research as opposed to just the HCG membership's perspective on those issues and challenges in healthcare. One of the things that I find most interesting about the industry pulse research is that Change Healthcare and the HK invest in it with no agenda or foregone conclusions. There's nothing they're trying to get out of it other than exposing what the industry is thinking, what they are facing, and how they plan to deal with it. And this year, that investment was taken to another level. We brought in Michael from Insight Dynamo. So, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell folks a little bit about Insight Dynamo. It's an independent research market research organization that we brought in to administer the Pulse research this year. Tell us about your organization and what you do, and then tell us how was the Pulse research administered, who were the participants, what was the methodology behind it for this 10th anniversary edition? Yeah, thank you. Uh, we founded Insight Dynamo roughly seven years ago to serve the healthcare industry and provide not just expert market research analysis, but expert healthcare insights. We, we live and breathe the, this industry, and I think that we do a great job of, of supporting our clients across the healthcare spectrum. And I'm going to turn it over to Grant Evans. He has the first question about the survey results. Thanks, Rich. So, David, could you summarize some of the, the key insights gleaned from this year's survey? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of insights. I mean, the, the, what's so interesting about the survey is it really covers a broad set of topics, uh, just as the top 10 is pretty broad. But I think the thing that I've learned the most from this survey was how different both payers and providers um, feel about the, the trends in the marketplace and, and how uh, different they feel about the, the solutions to ultimately solve those problems. So um, you know, if, there's one, if there's one big insight, it's payers and providers feel and think differently about healthcare and, and the problems that we're facing. And we need to do something to bridge that divide in order to solve some of these challenges. Perhaps you could get into a little bit about anything you learned about how the industry is addressing the needs of consumers. We've heard so much about the rise of high deductible health plans and how this is impacting consumerism on both the payer and provider sides. Michael, it seems there's different folks, different parties at different stages of maturity. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the first questions we asked is we provided respondents with a series of four options that could describe where they might be in their organization along a consumer-centric path. They could say that they have no formal consumer-centric strategy. They could have a nascent one where they're just starting to put some programs and policies in place. They could have an 
intermediate consumer centric strategy where maybe they've got some of those uh, uh, policies and programs in place and are just starting to see some return and, uh, and, or they could have a full consumer centric strategy where they really started to close the loop um, and, and know that they're serving consumers the way that they want. And one of the things we noticed quite clearly is that payers tend to be more along, if you think of this as a left to right spectrum from no consumer centric strategy to all the way on the right to have a full consumer centric strategy, payers tend to be further to the right than our providers. Providers are much more likely to say that they have no formal consumer-centric strategy whatsoever. And that was a, a, interesting for us. We didn't necessarily expect there would be that, that stark a difference between the two populations. Very interesting. And David and Ferris, any insights into why this chasm exists? David, I'll go first. Consumerism in general, or a topic like that, has been on the top 10 list for Every year, I think the last dozen years or so that we've uh, published a top 10. And I, I, I've seen the industry struggling to move from an employer-centric uh, orientation to a, a more consumer or full member uh, orientation in terms of uh, focus. I, I think on the provider side, and, and one thing that might differentiate the two is that the provider community in general is, is focused on acute and chronic medical conditions and so they don't see the full consumer population they're they're focused on those that are sick or need medical interventions whereas the health plan is looking at a situation where uh they have a hundred thousand members and only 20 or 30,000 of those members will even see a physician uh, during the course of a year. Even a smaller percentage will ever be inside of a hospital. And their concern now is, is evolving towards, I, I, I got to stop filling up the bucket with sick people. I've got to get upstream from the medical conditions and really try to address the consuming population, the membership population, the citizens of the United States in a healthy way. And I think the providers are, are getting there, but they really only see a portion of the population. And I think that may be the difference between what we're seeing here and the data this year. I don't know, David and Michael, if that resonates with you, but that's, that's my initial thought as I looked at this data. Well, I, I do agree with you, Ferris, that, you know, there, you know, the differences in, in terms of where payers and providers are and, and just in the patient journey and how they interact with, with the patient slash consumer um, ultimately has an impact. But I, but I do think as, as, the, as the consumer or patient becomes uh, a growing a portion of, of the funding for, for payers or for healthcare. Um, I think you know providers are going to have to treat them and think of them differently. Uh, I think the entire experience that that members have with their providers um, has typically not been positive. You know, in terms of waiting um, for their physician, et cetera. Um, you know, difficulty with scheduling appointments, even finding or picking a PCP. So I, I do think that that could create and will create differentiation uh, for providers going forward. And so, and customers are demanding more. So I think that the customer is going to become, you know, again, customer slash patient is going to become more powerful, uh, a more powerful force in the industry and providers should take heed. 
the good news is, you know, for payers is that they've been well positioned for this type of transition because, you know, they already have the, the infrastructure and scale to support uh, those members. You know, to your point, they have 100,000 members. They already have a call center there to support them. They probably already have portals to support them. So they're already uh, have that capability um, set up. But I do think as the healthcare industry evolves, providers are going to have to recognize that this is going to impact them and will become a differentiating factor one way or the other if, if they don't uh, respond. And I wonder, David, as well, if uh, and your perspective would be appreciated because you're out there in the marketplace every day, if the fragment, uh, the siloed structure of healthcare, or the fragmented structure of healthcare, doesn't contribute to this factor that Michael's pointed out as well, and that is, uh, and I, I personally experienced it over the last few months, uh, uh, diving into a personal medical situation, I, I ended up with four different uh, providers, and when I was going for the final sort of let's find out what's happening with Ferris Taylor. I had to go to four different locations and get my own records and take them to the final uh, uh, consult that I had at the, the medical, uh, the teaching hospital that I was going to. And, and that fragmentation really makes it difficult for the providers to have a full consumer uh, focus. All they see is that patient for that one in encounter. And do they really have the data at their, at their fingertips to be able to look at the whole person? Uh, have, you, have you seen anything like that? Well, I think you've, encom <laughs> you've encapsulated the challenge uh, very, very much. And I think that's where uh, more integrated delivery systems but also um, organizations that better, better enable uh, coordination of care across providers and also, of course, interoperability. Uh, all these challenges need to be overcome to improve that patient experience. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, you know, as we look at some of these other responses, uh, we'll touch on those things that clearly are, are problems that need to be solved. Another area where we saw a bit of a difference was payers and providers are obviously on different pages regarding who's best positioned to provide cost and quality data to consumers, each camp believing that they're the best choice for this. Any insights as to why this is the case? Well, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, this was a little bit of a surprise to me to think that uh, providers themselves can, you know, give patients uh, quality data about themselves. Uh, I do, you know, think when you look at the respondents overall, the majority of them saw that, that or, or you know, responded that health plans were probably better positioned for this. And I would agree. I mean, as, as a financer, as a data aggregator, I think they are better positioned to be an overall member advocate. And especially given some of the challenges that Ferris mentioned with the fragmentation that exists uh, across the, the ecosystem. And so looking at the overall patient journey and, and, and their care as a whole, um, I think they're just better positioned to do that. Now, maybe that will change as as more providers become payers or, or have more responsibility for the whole care of the member. Um, but right now, I would uh, agree with the majority of the respondents, not, not, not the providers who thought differently, but the majority of the respondents who thought pay, uh, payers are better positioned. 
And I think, uh, David, some of this just relates to the amount of time that the payers have been dealing with the uh, uh, cost and quality issue uh, versus the payers. I, I was involved at uh, Harvard Community back in the early 90s when five employers came to us and said, we want to be able to evaluate uh, each of the health plans that are serving our employees as to the quality of care that they were providing and uh, at that point it was just five employers in New England uh, that created this health information or health employer data information set or HEDIS that now is a fundamental part of accreditation with uh, with the various organizations NCQA and others and so the payers have been looking at this data and struggling with how do we really measure these things uh, I think longer than than providers have but at the same time I find some encouragement that uh, providers are saying hey we at least some percentage are uh, stepping up the the plate and saying yeah we have a role here to play as well but those those perspectives are different and uh, I will say to the listener today that um, if you look back at other industry pulse reports this is the first year that we've really been able had sufficient responders to break out the payers versus the providers and so this is new information that I think is is very valuable to every stakeholder in healthcare but Payers have been at it longer than the providers have. You know, speaking of past industry pulse reports and switching gears to value-based care, one of the things that you can see, if you take a look at almost any industry research, when organizations go out to look at value-based care, full value-based care, full VBC, VBR, APM, whatever you want to call it, alternative payment models, value-based reimbursement, value-based care, it's always five years away. It's always five years away. And so you took a different approach in the Industry Pulse Report rather than say, how far away is it? Where are you now? You, you developed a continuum, a model, a maturity model for value-based care and ask payers and providers where they are. Michael, before I, I share the results of that and then I have some questions for that, can you talk about how you built that maturity curve in the, that people will see in the report when they download it? Sure, yes. Just like when we were asking consumers to to self-identify where they might be on this continuum. We did the same thing uh, when it comes to value-based care. Um, we asked whether they had no links to quality whatsoever in terms of their processes, uh, their, their fee structure, et cetera. Uh, we asked if they were fee-for-service with some limited links to quality. We asked if maybe they'd started to incorporate alternative payment models such as patient-centered medical homes, um, or if they've gone all the way to full capitation. And again, the respondent decided which one of these best exemplified where they were on that continuum. Great. Thank you for that. And let me share with the listeners what we found, and then I'll open it up for questions. So payers reported being much further along the path to value-based care than providers, which was a pretty significant gap, with nearly two-thirds of payers, 62%, indicating their organizations are using alternative payment models and 9% using full capitation, that's the payers. Meanwhile, less than half, 43% of the providers, say they use alternative payment models, and a mere 2% report full capitation in use. And in addition, 25% of payers said they are much more likely than providers, 8% of providers, to cite IT infrastructure as a key barrier to implementing value-based care. 
David Ferris, to what do you attribute this gap? How do you explain that? How do you have payers, and Michael, you may have insight here too, how do you have payers reporting that they're much further along the path of value-based care than providers when the providers are in the payer networks? How do you square that circle? What does that tell us about value-based care in the industry? Well, what it tells to me is this This follows, again, this is a kind of a, um, a educated guess, but I, what, it, what it means to me is it, is it goes back to the 80-20 rule. So my guess is that you know payers, almost all of them, are doing value-based contracts with their providers, but they're probably only doing 80% of those contracts with 20% of those providers. So it's, it's usually the larger providers, the integrated delivery systems, the one that have the capacity, the scale, the analytics to take on risk that have those contracts. And so there's probably fewer providers that are actually engaging with those payers and risk-based models, but they probably represent um, the majority of payers for sure, but also the majority of reimbursements. Uh, that's what I would expect if we were to dive down further in the data. First, do you have a take on that? Yeah, I'm glad David took the first shot at your question. It's it, of all of the things in this uh, uh, report this year, and as you said, uh, value-based uh, care of some type or reimbursement has been on the top 10 list all 10 years that we've done industry pulse. And it's always somewhere out there in the future, but this is the first year that we've really seen this very dramatic difference in perspectives on where the industry is at. And my first response would be, I have no idea, but I think it's probably the biggest question that we need to get at as an industry. And and David, your, your response has been very helpful. I would, and this is total supposition, this is not HKEG or any specific industry expert that I've talked with, but in my own mind, I wonder if as executives and and providers have responded to this question, that they really aren't paying, and this isn't a criticism, they're not they're not paying attention to how they get reimbursed. They are focused on the thing that they do best, which is providing care. And whether one patient that they're they're uh, meeting with is in a value-based contract with a certain insurer or payer, and the next patient is in a different relationship or, or a contractual relationship, they may not be focused on that side of the relationship. Now, should they be? That's a different question. But Seeing these results set my head spinning in a lot of directions, but if we don't get everybody onto the same page, I don't know how we make this transformation that we have to make in healthcare to actually get to a value-based system, which every other industry is is focused on, as opposed to the activity-based and fee-for-service sort of basis of healthcare going back several decades. So David, I appreciate your perspective. I, I simply challenge us to think at a different level as to why these two data sets look so different. And I, th- I think, Michael, if I remember right, uh, you also broke out just executives 
versus the responders in, to in total, just those in the C-suite. And in, in that breakout, it's even more dramatic how different the perspectives are. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Ferris. If we look at payer C-suite respondents, nearly 90% of them are saying that they are on the right-hand side of the equation. They've got alternative payment models or have gone all the way to full capitation. And you've got a much lower number, obviously, on the, the, the providers doing that. You, they still say that they're on the, the left-hand, if you will, side of the, the equation where they're, they've got fee-for-service or no links to quality whatsoever. So that you know, the C-suite, which should know where they are in the, on the continuum, is is making it an even starker contract. I think the, you know, what we're getting at here, the explanation is it's it's all about who is involved in the contracting. And if you look at the respondent base, so 445 healthcare leaders nationally at or serving payer and provider organizations, 24% are C-suite, 15% VP, SVP, and over 40% hold director titles. That C-suite's going to know what's going on, and certainly the payers are going to know what's going on because that's their network strategy, right? That's their contracting strategy. But when you start to get further into a provider organization, and I think, first you were getting at this, they're not necessarily going to know exactly what kind of a contract they're, they're working under uh, if they're, when they're seeing a patient or they're dealing with patient billing or what have you. And my experience, Rich, as chief operating officer of a small health plan over the last four or five years, really brought to light the fact that uh, in our working with our provider network, until we could deliver to that provider a significant portion of their patient population under a well-defined value-based contract with understood metrics as to the outcomes, the value that we were asking those providers to, uh, uh, to deliver to our members until we could get to a higher percentage of their patients under those contracts and under our specific contract because the other insurers had different measures of value that they wanted to uh, to have those providers perform at. And until we get across that chasm of this transition to value, it is going to be a challenge. But, uh, but seeing the data in front of us with these uh, different perspectives, I think is a real eye-opener. And I commend uh, Michael and the research team as we put the questions together, that we set aside this question, how far away are we? And really dove into what's holding us back. And uh, on the payer side, I understand the infrastructure question that, uh, or, or the priority that they came back with. On the, the provider side, we just need more collaboration, more uh, uh, sitting down at the table and agreeing on what is the value that the member wants to have and how are we gonna measure that? And then put the systems in place to be able to track that and report it back to the providers. Yeah, Ferris, you bring up a really good point. When we when we were asking the follow-up question, once we learned where on the spectrum individuals were, one of the questions we asked shortly afterwards was, why is it taking so long for value-based payments to take hold? And what we learned is a difference of opinion from the two populations. So providers tend to lay this at the feet of unclear conflicting performance measures or regulatory changes or political uncertainty. In other words, just like you said, agreement on exactly what we're gonna measure and how we're gonna measure it. 
payers much more likely were to, were much more likely to say that this is an IT issue. We just have to figure out how to measure it, right? So, IT systems in place in order to get those great uh, uh, episodes of care measured. And once we have that, then the, the system seems to to be solved for. So that's kind of what we saw when we heard that. But David or, or, or Ferris, does that does that ring true with what you're seeing in the marketplace? Do you you know does it make sense to you when we see the data displayed that way? Well, it, it does make sense to me that providers will be concerned with standards uh, and methodology around this because they have to deal with obviously multiple payers and 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 having and, and they don't want to treat patients differently based on what payer that that patient may be enrolled in. So, it, you know, it makes perfect sense to me that providers would be concerned with that. I, it also makes sense to me that uh, as the aggregator of a lot of this data and having to ultimately uh, finance uh, the, the care and figure out how best to pay for it, that the IT challenges on the, on the payer side uh, are pretty immense. And, um, and particularly in, in making sure that they're paying for you know what is an episode or, or what is quality, uh, and making sure the provider is being paid properly for that, um, you know, for that agreement that they've contracted with. So yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense. And I think uh, you know the the function within the healthcare system that uh, the gears that really make everything work over uh, decades has been an encounter with a, a claim that's submitted and then a processing adjudication of that claim to a payment back to the provider. But that was a an administrative transaction, a claims transaction, not a clinical transaction. And I, I think we may be seeing in this data and in this difference uh, really a, a, a shining opportunity, a light at the end of the tunnel with respect to electronic medical records and the fact that we finally have data flowing electronically that relates to clinical data. And without that clinical data, there's no way to measure value. And so we've, we've, we've made a great step forward in the last eight or 10 years with electronic medical records. The providers are still looking at those medical records sometimes as intrusive, and we can talk about that later, but, but in fact, it is to help them manage their, their patient load, whereas the payers now are looking at that uh, rich claims data, the, the social determinants of health, or the barriers to health, the transportation, the housing, the, the food uh, deserts and like that, bringing all of that data together into something that really could measure quality and outcome. And as we measure that, then we can get to, uh, to value. So it doesn't surprise me that the payers are focused on, gosh, how are we going to put all of this data and this infrastructure together to address value-based payments? Whereas the providers are saying, I'm still coming up to speed. Tell me what you want to do, want me to do, and and get together as an industry on the payer side and agree upon, as you said, David, some of those standards, and then the providers will perform. They'll respond to that, and they'll be incented to respond to that. So, Faris, you hit on a lot of things, and David, you also hit on a lot of things regarding what it'll take to implement value-based care, and one of the big 
takeaways there is the need for interoperability and data exchange uh, and access to clinical data. And I think at the end of the day, also allowing consumers to have access to their data, data portability. But before we get to that, any final thoughts on what it will take to implement value-based care and how to bring payers and providers together? We talked about contracting. We talked about collaboration. We talked about interoperability. And I want to get into that as part of my next question because we did ask an interoperability question as well. But any final thoughts on what it'll take to get to value-based care? Well, this is Michael. We did ask a specific question um, that said, what can health plans most effectively do to support providers to orchestrate high-value care? And we saw payers saying interoperability is one of the answers to that. I know that this will segue to another question that we do down the road, but payers are saying that that seems to be the barrier. We've got to develop APIs to improve interoperability to get better ways to share that data. Uh, we, we have providers, as Ferris pointed out before, saying, well, let's first agree on the standards of quality and outcomes data. Let's, let's figure that out. And then maybe we can work to further co-develop some of our, our risk management programs. Uh, so I think we have part of the industry, the payer side, saying we're already ready to start working on the technology side of interoperability. We have some providers maybe saying that, while that's important, we need to get some of the, the, the details on the standardization in line. I actually think that there's a more of a fundamental barrier to all this, which is, you know, beyond the technology and beyond the standards, and that's trust. I, I still think there's a fundamental uh, separation between a payer and provider in terms of can they trust each other? And, and uh, in order to really, uh, and, you know, put aligned incentives in place, and to form the partnerships necessary to look at the patient as a whole person and address all their needs, not just the needs of when they're in a, a doctor's office, uh, but also make sure that the physician's being reimbursed properly, but 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 in, and fairly, but not too much. And so there's a, there's a whole issue of trust that we need to overcome. And I think you know this is why you see much more vertical integration uh, within the marketplace as people are trying to solve that problem by basically buying one or the other, thinking that that's going to at least remove that particular barrier. Um, but given this, the, the fragmentation of our, of our system, we really need to work to overcome, I think, that fundamental issue before we can really solve any of the other problems. I'm glad, David, you brought that up because in fact, for the consumer, Trust is the currency that makes the uh, the industry work, and I, you know, we can we can talk outside of healthcare, but uh, you know, Amazon Prime. I I trust that when I go online and I buy a product, uh, you know, the next day or next two days, it'll be at my door. And I, just on a personal basis again, after 12 years at Harvard Community, Harvard Pilgrim, uh, within two days of leaving the payer side of the industry, I was sitting in a community hospital, part of Partners Healthcare, and my friends and colleagues, people I'd worked with for years, came in to the hospital to negotiate their rates. And that was not a trust relationship. That was a transaction relationship. And there was no trust there. It was, uh, and I remember one executive saying, I'll take you to the mat for 10 cents per member per month um, on, on reimbursement. That doesn't generate trust. I actually 
David, adding to that trust, believe that we as all stakeholders in healthcare need a totally new mindset as it relates to this transformation to value-based care. And trust is a key component of it. But we, we've got to go from, I'm, I'm negotiating a network contract and, and I got to get the last dollar out of the providers. That mindset as a payer has to shift to, I've got to deliver and we together, providers and payers need to come together and deliver high value, low cost care to all of the population, not just to this diabetic patient or this uh, individual that has cancer, but to all of the population. And that's gonna take a new mindset, a new way of thinking about healthcare. And as we struggled as HKEG with respect to the top 10, uh, this delivery system transformation that is verbalized in the top 10 this year is all encompassing. It touches on almost everything that we've talked about in the podcast today. Uh, but it's a new mindset that it's going to take to deliver that. So let's talk about new mindsets. One of the enablers that we talked about for value-based care and so much more consumer engagement, consumer access to health data is interoperability. And like value-based care, it's something that has challenged the industry for years and is crucial to delivery system transformation. And we ask payers and providers what it will take, what will make healthcare interoperability happen, what will be the principal driver. And this is another area where payers and providers are surprisingly divided on what will make healthcare interoperability happen. More than twice as many providers, 23%, than payers, 11%, see consumer demand as driving interoperability. And nearly 40% of the C-suite believe interoperability will materialize when consumers insist on it. That's the provider C-suite. Payers, however, are nearly twice as likely, 36%, than providers, 20%, to cite regulatory changes as fueling interoperability, while 18% of providers think physician-driven initiatives are a key driver compared to just 2% of payers. They're on polar opposite sides of the interoperability question. I think the takeaway is that providers seem to be waiting for consumer demand to get to a breaking point to drive interoperability, and payers are saying, no, regulation's going to drive this. The industry's going to have to be forced to do this. What do you guys see in that data? And Michael, anything anything more there that you want to tease out of what I've just shared in terms of the takeaways? Yeah, well, let me just add, in addition to that, we, we did ask, would APIs solve the problem? And we found that that was a relatively low scoring response for both payers and providers. So to your, to your point, I think you know, providers are saying it's going to be consumer-driven demand in some sense. It's going to be a physician response, um, and payers are looking for regulatory solutions to it. Uh, the, there isn't a simple technology solution. I think, you know, part of what David and Ferris have talked about is these two sides of the healthcare industry maybe not being on the same uh, page. They have to get on that same page before a technological solution uh, emerges to, to solve it. Well, I, I think it's unfortunate that right now, uh, unlike you know retail and other industries, uh, the the consumer is actually um, 
lacks power, uh, and unfortunately. So it, it, in many cases, the consumer doesn't have options to choose one provider over another provider because they have a better experience or they have better interoperability. So I think, you know, the push toward, you know, a consumer revolution uh, that's going to drive interoperability, providers will be waiting for a long time. So I really think it goes back to aligned incentives and, and really this whole concept of value-based care like we talked about. Uh, when, when the value of care uh, you know, based the cost quality threshold is driven by, 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 you know, frictionless workflows, by seamless integration, where one delivery system versus the other is providing better care, but getting better margin for that, uh, you know, value-based uh, reimbursement than the next one is, um, because they have interoperability, because they have more integrated workflows, because members are, are able to choose them versus the competitor uh, because they offer a better experience, that's really what's going to drive interoperability. Um, if, we're, if we're just waiting for the member to say, doctor, I, want, I don't want to take my medical record to the other physician. I want you to transmit it. If we're going to wait for that, it'll be a long time. I always love uh, participating with David because he's so articulate and, and, and understands the complex issues that come together uh, on a topic like interoperability. I will shed some light on, on the interoperability question that or, or issue that came onto the HK Top 10 this year. And, and interoperability has been an issue for, for many years. Uh, years ago, we were talking about systems interoperability, but there are so many legacy systems. And again, we have a very fragmented uh, and siloed industry. But the, the thing that uh, you will see if you look at the uh, HK Top 10 issues on interoperability this year, it had a slash and then talked about consumer data access. And I actually think the data part of that response this year is the critical component. It's, it's the data liquidity. And, and for the consumer, it's the availability and the accessibility and, and to their personal data. Now, uh, uh, <laughs> this sounds right, but a, a fire was lit under, under the industry uh, about this time last year when CMS endorsed open APIs with the uh, the Fire uh, app that uh, or API tool that was out there, and that's still a, a ways off. But uh, you know, I saw a study I think just this week where it was Strat I think uh, survey uh, where the question was asked: Do you have the data? that you need to do your job. And 90% of the responders were saying, I don't have the data to do my job. Uh, for us as an industry, interoperable or, or data liquidity is going to be a critical issue. Um, you know, on the, I, I shared the personal experience on one side, I was with my wife uh, at, a, at a doctor's appointment and sort of outside of the normal uh, data flow, uh, she had had some steroid injections. And in fact, when the a uh, neurosurgeon came in, he said, I've looked at those injections. I was taken back. He said, oh yeah, we sent a request out to the, uh, uh, the physician that uh, did those injections and he sent us all the reports. That 
increases the trust the consumer has, but it also provides a level of efficiency and value to the system that I think has been slow in coming, but we can get there. The technology and the analytical capabilities are there now to be able to move data around from application to application and 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 support the decision makers in healthcare, whether it be on the payer side or the provider side, support them in the decisions that they're making. So I'm optimistic here. I, I really appreciated the, the results of the survey. They're gonna take some more time to digest. We're just seeing these results along with the, uh, the rest of you in the industry, but these are conversations that are desperately needed to move healthcare forward. It's interesting what you say, Ferris, when you say the technologies are there, and I wonder if part of it is just a level of awareness or will. If you take a look at industry consortiums such as Commonwealth, if you take a look at, I know Change Healthcare just recently announced the API and services connection, where any development organization can connect to Change Healthcare services. And, you know, it's not just about data exchange, it's about services, right? It's about taking action on that data and providing a result back. And that is as easy as logging on to the website and looking at what APIs you want to connect with to integrate your solutions and to speed your application development, or dare I say it, to be more innovative. I wonder if some of it is just sort of inertia where the, you know, the industry just doesn't have sufficient willpower to actually make this happen, which is why the payers look to Washington to say, well, force the issue. I think if you look at any other industry, I'm sorry, if you, if you look at any other industry where the consumer really is empowered and really does uh, drive, in many cases, the cost and quality of products, uh, you see interoperability um, throughout the entire supply chain. You take automotives, um, take retail, et cetera. Uh, because ultimately those industries have realized they need to cut the cost and inefficiency out of their supply chain. And so they've leveraged technology to do that, and they've done it for decades, frankly. Um, In healthcare, our incentives are not aligned. And so there's really no incentive for us to, you know, cramp down on cost, uh, other than the fact that it's, you know, continuing to take money out of our own pockets because we're all consumers. Um, but that's why I really think, you know, the, the, the movement toward value-based care is so important uh, and really starting to, to pay for outcome rather than transaction, because then each party of, of this, you know, this agreement will be incentivized to then start driving costs out of the system. And that's either cost because of inefficiencies in workflows or, or fragmented uh, ways of transmitting data or, or uh, inefficiencies of delivering care, providing too much care uh, or not providing the right care that ultimately results in a more positive outcome. David, you bring up a really good point. And one thing that I feel like we've been talking a lot right now about the, the differences between payers and providers, where they're not on the same page. But we did see when it comes to driving positive outcomes, there seems to be some general agreement. One of the questions we asked is who is best positioned to engage the healthcare consumer to support them on their healthcare journey and nudge them into more healthy behaviors. And it doesn't matter who answered the question, whether it was a payer, provider, technology partner, et cetera, the answer seemed to be the same. It's going to be providers that are going to be best positioned to engage with consumers. So maybe that's an area that the industry can build on 
if there's if there's agreement that there's the the engagement is going to happen at the provider level maybe that's an area that they can build on and start to develop the trust that you've been talking about has been lacking I, I, Michael, I appreciate your your pointing to that uh, additional piece of of the research industry pulse, uh, and 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 going back, Rich, to your question, um, uh, part of that question was. Uh, are certain segments of the industry waiting for the legislative and regulatory process uh, to to solve some of these questions? And it's always easy to say, you know, you just you dictate what I have to do and I will do it. But that doesn't personalize healthcare. And I see on the on on further out in the future uh, a, a lot of opportunity. Uh, for entrepreneurship and and uh, technology development that could be stifled if we depend on the regulatory process to define how we're going to perform as healthcare. Uh, I think we have the best healthcare system in terms of outcomes of of any place in the world. What we don't have is the best healthcare system in terms of cost and the efficiency in how we bring everybody together to address the challenges in healthcare. And that's something we can solve internally. We don't need the government to tell us how to do that. We all know what we have to do. There is something that happens to every one of us who work in healthcare. And by the way, I in my experience outside of healthcare as well as within healthcare, some of the most caring, dedicated, conscientious uh, people that I know are all in healthcare. But we tend to walk through the front door of our particular office, our little piece of healthcare, and we forget the consumer. We forget what it's like to be on a personal basis a part of the healthcare system. And so in some ways, we just need to put back on that personal hat, what would I want to have done or what would I want for my mother or my daughter or my son uh, in terms of this healthcare interaction? And then if that's what I want, how would I get there the most efficient and effective way? that process will get lost if we wait for government regulation to impose that those solutions on us. Well, the one thing for sure, well, Ferris, is, is if, we, if we don't do something as an industry to solve some of these problems, the government will do it. Absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day, um, they will have no choice. Uh, but so it's, a, it's upon us as healthcare leaders to, to really drive these things and solve these problems on our own. Um, and, and again, if, 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 it does, if we're not part of the solution, um, then someone will solve it for us. It'll be dictated. I agree, David. And David, on, on that point, it's also up to the industry to innovate these solutions and bring the consumer into the fold. There's a famous Steve Jobs quote that I'll paraphrase here. I don't have it memorized, but he once said that if he had asked consumers what they wanted, they would have described a BlackBerry. And so... It's up to the industry to bring this forward. We can't necessarily wait for the consumer demand to reach to a point that all of these different things that have to come together to make all of these important achievements in healthcare possible will be waiting a long time. We need to bring this to the marketplace. We, the innovation opportunities are there. Again, I, I talked about some of the things that Change Healthcare is doing to foster innovation in the marketplace. We can't do it alone. 
software developers, partner organizations, payers and providers need to get together with us and with like-minded organizations and individuals to build those bridges between the solutions and make these things happen. We have to bring this to the marketplace. We can't wait for the marketplace to be wiping their brow with sweat because they're so stressed out about waiting. They've been waiting so long. Now, we spent a lot of time today talking about the gaps between payer and provider perceptions around these areas and on the consumerization maturity curve, on the value-based care maturity curve, on interoperability. I want to let the listeners know that there's also a lot of agreement that you'll find in the 2020 Industry Pulse report that you can download and you should look at the show notes for the links. One of those areas was around artificial intelligence and machine learning. And Grant Evans has a question on that. And Grant, if you would just share the top line data from the report first, and then let's see what our reactions are around that this, this important area of agreement. Sure. Respondents to this year's Pulse survey say that smart technologies like AI and machine learning are having a positive impact on operations by improving health system efficiency. That was cited by 56% of providers and 38% of payers as well as reducing costs, which was cited by 42% of providers and 28% of payers, and that AI and machine learning are also improving consumer engagement with 36% of payers, 39% of providers reporting a payoff. Um, Where do you see this trend going in the near future? Well, the, this is one of the most exciting areas um, from my perspective uh, because, you know, one of the things that I've been really, really, uh, you know, advocating for for a long time is, is moving from population health to uh, personalized health. And, and really, we can only move to personalized health with the advent of, of AI and machine learning technologies. Uh, you know, for, for me to be treated just like, you know, any other, you know, 50-year-old male, um, just because I fit into that broad category, um, seems kind of ridiculous when obviously my, my family history, my genetics, uh, my social determinants are all very different. And so by learning about who I am personally um, uh, and, and being able to, uh, you know, provide engagement that is meaningful and relevant to me um, uh, versus the guy down the street that may look like me at a very broad level, but clearly has different wants, needs, uh, and expectations, uh, I think is, is very, very important. Um, and I think that can only be possible uh, through AI. And I agree, David. I, I think that there's a, a, a phenomenon taking place here where, I, and we've heard in the industry, uh, even on the political side, uh, you know, I didn't know healthcare was so complex. It is complex, but the light at the end of the tunnel is that technology has the ability to absorb that complexity. And Grant, as I looked at this data, the the really interesting thing that came to my mind, uh, because the providers do seem to be more optimistic and and anticipating the the positive impacts of, of artificial intelligence and new technologies, is that they've seen the direct results of that. The fact that, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, an image can be processed, uh, 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 a radiology view of the data can actually be processed much faster and more accurately with the application of technology. And they're 
their individual processes within their organization can be facilitated. When they walk into the office of that patient, they already have the support of all of that complexity of healthcare being analyzed from a systems point of view, and they have at their fingertips the things that will help them do a better job on a personalized basis, as, as David said, in caring for that individual at that moment in front of them in that office. I think that's the excitement of technology. It's been a long time coming. I remember uh, uh, 1975 when, uh, uh, what was the fellow's name? Uh, put out his uh, 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 predictions for the future. And AI was one of those predictions. How many years ago is that? But we're seeing today that it's coming to fruition and starting to have an impact. So I agree with you, David. This is an exciting area and probably an area for next year's industry pulse that we really uh, ought to formulate how to dig deeper into how to make it move more quickly to solutions for payers, for providers, for technology vendors, for all of us as stakeholders in healthcare. We, uh, we have a couple of other AI podcasts on the Change Healthcare podcast that I would encourage listeners to look for and give them a listen. They speak to some of the things first that you just mentioned. Uh, one of the points we made in the most recent uh, show that we did on AI was the fact that it, it has been out there for so many years, and yet all of a sudden, very rapidly, it's moved from science fiction to science fact, and there are real practical applications, practical innovations that you can apply today uh, to your some very serious business problems uh, in healthcare. And interesting, you know, we talked a, a bit just now about the clinical impact, but when you look at the data, you know, the respondents talk about having a positive impact on operations. They're not just talking, I think, about the clinical side. I think they're talking about the financial side that they're starting to see, too. Uh, David, I wonder if you could speak to that, some of the innovations that we're seeing in AI that can impact your business operations, not just the clinical side of the business, if you're a provider, for example, or a payer. Well, just just think of a, of a provider that can leverage AI to identify whether a claim is likely to deny or not uh, based on the way it's coded and based on the, the uh, member diagnosis and the like, so that they can reevaluate that claim uh, proactively before submitting it. Um, to make sure that it's coded properly, as an example. And then just imagine the efficiency associated with those claims being paid right the first time instead of being denied, having to be reevaluated, uh, only to be resubmitted for, for payment. Uh, so that's just a, a simple example, but that, that carries on throughout the entire workflow, uh, both on the payer and provider side. And, and I could see where as these systems um, become smarter, uh, you know, through machine learning, that a lot of these 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 kind of uh, you know drudgery, the, the drudgery work that claims processors have to go through, or or even um, AP uh, staff have to go through to really dig into claims and figure out what's wrong with them, uh, that can all be resolved uh, relatively easily by AI, so that the healthcare professionals can focus on more innovative more value-added functions and, and, tech and activities. 
adding to your comment, David, um, it, you know, what was it? 15 years ago, the Institute of Health uh, uh, had the report crossing the chasm that uh, said that 30 to 50 percent of the healthcare spend was fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, that was updated very recently. And the thrilling part of that is that it was down to 25 percent. But 25 percent of a 3.6 or 3.8 trillion dollar industry is a lot of money. And David, you've hit right on the uh, the head of the nail, the opportunity there to to be able to process the data and and identify where those inefficiencies are at, the waste and the duplication that's taking place in healthcare that isn't necessary. Oh, that person's already had uh, an MRI over here or a CT scan. Let's bring that over. Uh, uh, you know, I was in a personal situation where I had a CT scan uh, of a heart, a calcium CT scan. And in the process of that, guess what it discovered? A lump in the lungs. Well, I would have never known that except that the technology allowed the look at the data broader than what an individual might have looked at in that specific test. So there's great opportunity. The data is there. The technology is there. And now, as you said, uh, Rich, it's, it's, coming onto the market very, very fast. And I think we either get on board with the technology or the train will leave the station and we'll be standing on the, uh, on the platform uh, without a, a, a way to go forward. We have time for about one more question. Grant, you had a question about cybersecurity? Yeah, I mean, while we're touching on artificial intelligence, there's no lack of news regarding cybersecurity breaches. And meanwhile, this healthcare data is essential for us to leverage artificial intelligence and big data to drive more precise care and personalized treatment. And this year's survey asked payers and providers about the reasons why this continues to be an issue. What are organizations doing? Well, I think think one of the most interesting and unfortunately disappointing um, part of that response that we we got was the, the size of respondents that felt that their CEOs and boards um, have not made this a priority. Um, it, it's, it's remarkable the, the number of uh, respondents that we got that indicated um, that it, it hadn't reached a priority enough to, to address because it, it's this is a very important issue. And, and it, it, again, it, it deals with trust. If members can't trust these uh, healthcare providers with their data, then there'll be reluctance to making it available and, and allowing interoperability and, and the like. Uh, that being said, you know the the biggest cause for these these cyber attacks or the, or the biggest threat um, based on the respondents is the fact that you know the threats are just changing. They're changing very very quickly, uh, and of course, ninety um, percent of attacks are caused by a phishing or other types of um, really you know human oriented um, attacks. So uh, what I've seen organizations do is, of course, they need to make sure their infrastructures are secure, uh, their patches are updated and those types of things. But they really need to make sure that their employees are trained, that they have proper security uh, policies in place, and they have a robust uh, approach to uh, re- you know, basically responding to incidents when they occur. Because it's not about if they're going to occur, it's about when they occur, and making sure that you can, one, be proactive to try to prevent them, but, but very reactive uh, when does, something does occur so you minimize the damage. 
Michael, David mentioned uh, the surprising data, but he didn't mention the data point. What did the data show on that question? We asked the consumers or the respondents, excuse me, what the top three reasons were that healthcare organizations continue to suffer cybersecurity breaches. And the top three, doesn't matter who the respondent is, were in this order, that the sophistication of attacks were increasing faster than prevention capabilities. The second reason was that it's too difficult to account for human factors, such as phishing, email, social engineering, et cetera, and that the cost to address is too high. Now, another issue that David brought up is that feeling that cybersecurity is not recognized as a priority at the executive or board level. And again, no matter who is responding, payers, providers, all respondents, others, you have roughly 20% of them saying that that's one of the top three reasons, that it's just not seen as a priority. And interestingly, among the C-suite, that's even higher, 24% are saying that that's not a priority. So they're self-recognizing that they haven't made it as much of a priority as it should be. Faris? I I struggle with the cybersecurity uh, issue. It uh, it really was not uh, part of the HK Top 10 list until five, six, seven years ago when we had some major health plan breaches, 80 million, uh, 20 million uh, records being breached. Um, and as we, as an industry or as, as the healthcare executive group membership dug into that, what really jumped out at me was that we have proceeded with all of the technology and addressing the issues of healthcare without recognizing that we are touching some of the most personal and private data at the consumer level that they have. Uh, uh, the IBM Poneman uh, uh, research just just this year, you know, pointed to 41% of all data breaches across all industries are healthcare related, and the cost of a healthcare breach is the highest in healthcare of any other industry. So, in fact, th that. Uh, uh, executives in the C-suite are saying it isn't a high enough priority may just relate to the fact that it needs it is a priority but it's it needs to be even higher we need to get out in front everything that we do should begin with that question how do I protect the personal and private nature of whatever I'm doing as it relates to the provider or the consumer or even the health plan. And, and you know, as, as you look around the world, my <laughs> final concern here about technology is as excited as we are about AI and machine learning to help us as an industry solve our core problems, uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe or elsewhere in the world, there is a group of cyber criminals that have access to those same technologies, and they're going to be applying those to our data set if we don't protect that data set at the very beginning of everything that we do. So this is an, it, it's only, I think, one question, wasn't it, Michael? But this question raises a very important issue. It's on the top 10. It's been there for many years. And the results say we need to make it a higher priority in terms of solving the problems that address us in cybersecurity. 
So I don't want to sound like a mercenary here, but we have a great show on the podcast around high trust and SOC 2 compliance, and it does delve into a lot of these issues that I would encourage our listeners to give that a listen as well, because it really is a horse before the cart kind of problem, right? You've got to solve that or ensure that that is addressed in order for all of these other things to be enabled. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time today. Any parting shots for our listeners? I think we covered a lot. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to have this dialogue. Um, you know, one of the greatest things about the healthcare executive group, from my perspective, is that this dialogue will continue. Um, you know, we're just we're just having this dialogue now because the industry pulse was just released. Um, but this really kicks off a whole series of events and and, and discussions around healthcare issues uh, and and the fa- the problems we face every single day. And so. Um, I'm looking forward to the listeners um, participating in that dialogue. So um, as we go f- throughout the year, hopefully we'll see you at the Healthcare Executive Forum in the fall, but also the many, many different events between now and then. And I'd add to that, uh, you know, I think great data. We're just beginning to peel the onion on what it all means. And this this podcast has been terrific, at least for the four or five of us to share our perspectives. But I think every single stakeholder in healthcare is facing some very tough decisions over the next uh, year or two. Uh, around costs and consumerism and uh, uh, integrating 21st century technology into decision making. And if we don't make those decisions right, um, I'm reminded of Michael Crichton's uh, quote in Lost Worlds, extinction's the inevitable result of one of two things, too much change or not enough change. And we have an opportunity uh, to step forward as stakeholders in healthcare, look at the data, look at what the industry priorities are, and actually take some action to solve them. I don't want 1970 or 2020 predictions as to what we should be doing to be like the, that AI prediction in 1975. We can't wait that long. We need to take action now and clearly, and we have to thank, HK has to thank uh, uh, Change and uh, Insight Dynamo and the teams of people that have focused on this research for bringing to the marketplace some real solutions or at least real perspectives on what those solutions need to be to move healthcare forward. And uh, we're dedicated to that. I'm sure each of you as listeners want that to happen. So let's just do it. That's the Nike logo. And that's what I think is ahead of us as healthcare. On that note, I encourage our our listeners to check the show notes. The full 2020 Industry Pulse report is available for download. Uh, It is, I dare say, probably the most expansive Industry Pulse report that has been produced in the past 10 years. Faris, David, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And most respondents, too, as well. Most respondents. Yes, and a strong representation from the provider side this year as well. Very balanced look at the industry, which is why I think we had the advantage of being able to see some of these differences in viewpoints as well as where pairs and providers are very aligned. A lot of light 
coming out of this year's Industry Pulse report. So I encourage everybody to get a copy, download it, share it, read it. If you have any questions, contact information, you know where to find us. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for your time today. And thanks to our listeners for listening to today's Change Healthcare podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.